the impact of coronavirus on the food chain. Millions of people in Zimbabwe are short of food and clean water. Fishery stores are working to uh, juggle unprecedented demand. The case food system has come under greater pressure than at any time in living memory. Food prices have trebled since the virus was found in Sudan. No Coronavirus has become a hunger crisis. Welcome to Frontline Food. Hello and welcome back. In the last two episodes, we've explored the interconnectivity of seed and life systems in the Bikita region of Zimbabwe and the reclaiming of indigenous practices as a part of coronavirus recovery and resilience in Tharaka, Kenya. Both examples serve as a source of inspiration for communities around the world. But what should our food and farming systems look like beyond coronavirus in the context of the UK? Can we too be inspired by these practices? It may seem like we've wandered far away from our history and understanding our food, health and life systems in the same way as we heard in Kenya and Zimbabwe. But there is actually a growing movement here in the UK to also reclaim our lost traditional practices and produce our food in ways that benefit both the environment and our communities. My poor and Every revolution starts with a seed. I started to learn about like the need for grain diversity and was like, hey, I want to grow grain, that sounds exciting. But also it was like a, um, I guess, like a synergy of uh, <laughs> some people moved to the area, to Mahanda, and set up a new bakery called Ryan Roses, and they were interested in sourcing local grain. And this was at the same time that I was interested in grain diversity and grain seed diversity. And then also another friend of ours is really into old tractors and like had bought an old tractor that he wanted to use. So it almost felt rude to not grow grain. It was like... There's bakers and there's someone with a tractor and I'm interested in grain diversity. So like, why the hell wouldn't we do it? This is Katie Hastings, grain and veg grower and the Welsh coordinator for the UK and Northern Ireland Seed Sovereignty Programme, which is run by the Gaia Foundation. Katie has, for the past couple of years, been on a quest to revive and grow a diversity of heritage grain in Wales with the help of her community. She talks us through this journey. Sorry once again for the dodgy internet connection. I work on vegetable and grain seed diversity um, while increasing diversity and like building networks of people who are working together to do that. Um, when I first started the role, I was quite focused on vegetable seed for the first year, working with real seeds and working with um, different commercial producers in Wales to increase their skills in seed production and their like access to diverse seed and their um, opportunities to sell seed to bring income streams to their farms but also to then like increase the amount of seed produced in Wales but when I started the role I really knew very little about grain but the more I started like going out into Wales and speaking to people about seed sovereignty and the importance of seed diversity with vegetables the more grains just kept coming up it was kind of unavoidable it was like you know Wales is the country that used to have a lot of arable farming and doesn't anymore and there used to be a lot of grain diversity and there isn't anymore, but that's still just about within living memory. So the more you speak to farmers and people interested in farming, the more this grain issue just comes up again and again. It's very pertinent for Wales, you know, and a lot of oats were grown in Wales in the past and they're not anymore. So 
when you're talking to people about diversity loss, it just becomes more and more apparent that grains are just so important in this landscape. Um, so I started working on grain issues and I connected with really inspiring farmers like Gerald Miles in St. David's. And then he kind of alerted me to this whole movement of people who were looking at heritage grains, the Welsh Grain Forum, Tortha who were growing a mixed population grain. And it opened my eyes to all of that stuff that I, on a personal level, had been previously unaware of. And then with the seed sovereignty work, it seemed really increasingly important to people that we worked on that. Um, people are moving away from growing like a diversity of different crops on each farm and they're moving towards having like monocultures of food that get exported. So now in the UK, grain is grown in the east of England where the conditions are optimal and people in Wales are growing sheep where the conditions are supposedly optimal for that. That's resulted in a lot of people no longer growing arable because this um, move towards like maximum efficiency. The more people move towards these modern grain varieties that are supposed to be higher yielding, better performing, they don't do well in Wales. They're not suited to a Welsh climate. But actually, the heritage grains are like because they have been grown in Wales for hundreds of years. Um, they're suited to these conditions, they're adapted, they have been selected over hundreds of years to work in our Welsh conditions. So when people put modern varieties in the ground here, they're not suited to this climate. Whereas the older heritage varieties, they have that genetic history that means that they're adapted to these conditions. They're probably better suited to the wet and to like higher altitudes. They have deeper root structures. And also the cultural significance, like these are like, heritage varieties that have been kept by Welsh farming communities for hundreds of years you know and if we lose those like we're losing a big part of like the Welsh indigenous culture um, and that's what I found with working some of the older Welsh farmers is it's very important to them to preserve like the culture around these grains and what they mean for them culturally and kind of for them to like continue growing something that their ancestors grew in this land um, feels really important um, we formed the Llaveni Network, which was like through my work with the Seed Sovereignty Programme was connecting with grain growers. And it was actually Gerald Miles' suggestion to form the network um, and bring people together. And it's been really inspiring because it's a mixture of older Welsh farmers and younger new farmers who are interested in sustainability. And it's been a way of seeing those two groups of people work together with like the common aim of, of bringing back the land races, but also just generally increasing diversity. And it's been really amazing to see the older Welsh farmers teaching these kind of younger new entrants to farming, how to grow grain. Um, and we're obviously in really beginning stages, but it feels like an exciting network. And we're now in the second year of bulking out these um, 14 Welsh land race oats that we got from gene banks. Um, and it feels like there's real momentum to carry that on. So these are like 14 Welsh land races that are on the brink of extinction, which hopefully our network will take on and get them back out into the fields again. I don't know about you, but for me, it's incredible to hear that this type of work is happening in the UK. Of course, it hasn't come without its challenges, but one in particular seems to have sent Katie on an interesting mission throughout Welsh history and around the world. Last year, as well as bulking out the rare lamb race oats with the idea that we'd be growing them on a larger scale in years to come when we bulk them out, five growing oats in the ground because they wanted to kind of begin the process of growing oats on a sort of medium scale so that they could um, 
learn how that worked and learn how to process them for human consumption um, because there's lots of added things you need to do to oats for humans to be able to eat them whereas animals can just eat them kind of how they grow um, and we just can't find the medium scale machinery to do that so we grew the oats last year on like five different sites like around five acres in total and none of us were able to process those oats for human consumption because there's either large commercial mills that require like a minimum runs and those mills only exist in England so that's just not feasible for small farmers or there's really tiny home scale little mills that you can buy and like you know maybe process the oats by hand on a tiny scale but there's no medium scale equipment in Wales to allow farmers to bring these oats back onto their farms and just like process them on a small to medium scale. I think it's the loss of arable farming in Wales and like the loss of diversity within farms. You know, people aren't growing these grains so there isn't medium scale equipment anymore to process them. Um, and it's also a strange mystery because we do know like from tithe maps, land maps, that like oats were grown all over Wales, like for hundreds of years and oats were in the Welsh cuisine. So it's really weird, like, I mean, a lot of oats were grown for animal feed, but they were definitely eaten as well. Um, and it's really weird that we don't know how they were processed. There's no old vintage machines. There's no, there's nothing in the museums, like we've contacted the museums. The old books, they don't seem to like lay out step by step how they were processed. And we've spoken to old mills like the Vellingannel Water Mill, which is, um, you know, an old mill that's been restored. And they don't fully know how it was done either, although they know it was something to do with kilns and using the millstones and kilning the oats first, but they still haven't cracked the process. So there's this weird like gap in historical knowledge about how they would have been processed in the past. The quest continues. Just like the calabash seed in Kenya and the millet seed in Zimbabwe, the oat in Wales has the potential to unlock a whole history of cultural understanding, which is an exciting journey to be on. The fact that our global food system relies so heavily on just four main crops, maize, wheat, rice and soybean, means that it's no surprise that we are constantly teetering on the edge of collapse. So as the coronavirus has shown us, we can no longer deny the importance of supporting food and seed sovereignty efforts like Katie's, and thankfully, more and more people are beginning to see this. One of the first things that happened with the pandemic was this rush on growing, rush on seed buying. And people suddenly became aware of their food supply chains. You know, supermarkets were emptying and people were like, oh my gosh, where does all this food come from? It comes from other countries. We need to be growing more here. So firstly, like realizing that we need to be growing more food here. And then obviously that naturally just eventually goes back to seed. How can it not? Because how can we grow more food here if we don't have the seed to grow that food? And seed companies start selling out really quickly. And then people start to freak out thinking, well, where's our seed supply coming from? So massively, like people have just become aware of how important it is to have a stronger seed supply in the UK and in Wales. And then again, this need for like local adaptation and local variety that has suddenly become really much more in people's minds, because if they're thinking about food security, they obviously need varieties that will do well in the regions where they're living. And so like, yeah, they need to, then, then suddenly they're asking questions about where these varieties are and like, where do they get them from and how do we increase them but obviously the pandemic is an awful thing but some really 
good things are coming out of it in that people are becoming much more aware of the food supply chain they're becoming much more aware of the need for like local food security and therefore local seed sovereignty and like people are suddenly putting a lot more energy into these things so like our um you know seed and grain movements have suddenly had a boost of energy a boost of people who are like newly concerned about this stuff um so hopefully that will have long-term impact and like hopefully we can maintain this like awareness of how important seed diversity is and how important um, food security is and food like local food resilience hopefully we can maintain that into the future it takes many years to do this stuff doesn't it it's going to take us years to bulk out these oat seeds so we can't kind of accelerate that in some ways and now there's a crisis and it's like well i wish we were five years down the line and we had much greater quantities of all these seeds but we don't and then it, we can't really accelerate it that quickly so it is a slow process and we'll just have to continue working on it and strengthening it like year by year the pandemic kick-started a more widespread movement towards supporting a local food system but as things now gradually ease back to normal and lockdowns become a thing of the past we must continue to support seed and food sovereignty efforts here in the uk and around the world so what can people do is save seed on farms and in gardens. So, you know, not just to strengthen your seed security, but also those seeds will end up being better locally adapted to your conditions and they'll be better quality. And like maybe join with a group of other people, create a seed circle, share seeds with one another that are like locally adapted and locally suited to your region. Um, if you're a farmer, yeah, definitely think about your seed supply next year and like are there seed crops you can be putting in the ground this year to kind of ensure that you will have access to them next year um on the grain front yeah we just need more people growing these rare grains we need to stop them going extinct and we need people to be bulking them out for seed and then also ultimately we need people to be growing and to do that we need strong um, supply chains so we need people to also be milling them and baking with them and eating them so basically we need everybody, you know, farmers and eaters and bakers and chefs to all be invested in having this diverse seed system. What excites me is that so many people do care about seed sovereignty and are getting involved in growing diverse grains and diverse vegetable seeds. And that's just super exciting. And I feel like those movements are growing year by year. And I'm really like happy to be part of it and I feel like in a time of crisis, especially, it's really productive to feel like you're doing something positive, like actually putting rare seeds in the ground that will grow and will bulk up and can be shared with people in the future is like such a positive act in a time like this that I'm just like so grateful that I can be part of it. And um, the vision for the future is that this, I in Wales, I feel like the farming landscape needs to and will change. Like we can't stay with this monoculture. I've nothing against sheep but we can't be growing like only one main crop across a whole country like we need to be growing um, a whole diversity of things that people want to eat so the vision is like changing the farming landscape partly back to what it used to be which is like mixed farming but also moving forward in terms of like new diversity and new adaptation to climate change um so like bringing some of the lamb race varieties back but also perhaps creating new varieties that are better suited for a changing climate, bringing mixed populations and like increasing genetic diversity. 
And I feel like there is increasing desire to do that from the farming community in Wales for our own resilience and for like future sustainability. And it's really inspiring that that's coming from older farmers and younger farmers, which makes me feel like, yeah, this is going to happen. There's like a movement of people doing this and working towards this, you know, re-diversifying the Welsh food landscape. And that includes genetic diversity. So the vision is to bring diversity back. Yeah. Joining the fight for seed and food sovereignty by growing a diversity of heritage seed is Kate Roberts from Pembrokeshire, who started a small market garden in response to the coronavirus to help feed her local community in their time of need. She is also my housemate, so we actually got to have a face-to-face chat this time, which means no need for internet apologies. Hi, my name's Kate Roberts and I started a market garden in March 2020 um, at the start of the coronavirus pandemic and I'm going to try and talk about it today but I think everyone's probably got coronavirus amnesia slightly so it's just trying to get a headspace back into thinking about what was going on at that time and mm. why did it really. Yeah was it corona that was was it the reason for why you started it was it coronavirus or have you is there something you've been wanting to do for a while? I, I had the intention to start something at the start of this year but not quite on the same scale as if um, coronavirus hadn't happened. Uh, I think it was like the much needed like rocket that sort of drove it really. Mm. And what what was different do you reckon that then made you do it? Obviously the, the need for local food, but did it change like your idea of what it was that you were gonna grow and that type of thing now? I think it became painstakingly obvious that how reliant we were on the supermarkets, especially the town that we live in, there wasn't anywhere to buy local organic vegetables. Um, and it was going to the supermarkets and there wasn't really any food on the shelves anymore. It was really disconcerting. And there was sort of the, the general feeling that, that they might not be able to keep supplying food and we didn't know how long it was going to go on for. And in a way, I feel like that really made everyone feel really powerless and made people really want to do something about it especially being told that you you know you can't go out that you have to stay in your homes it's like this real feeling of disempowerment and the one thing that people could do to to get that feeling of control back was to start growing vegetables Mm. and so everyone like so I think like the the online network really sort of powered that was that everyone could see what each other was doing and everyone just started to grow um Mm. so you see people in the car parks of the supermarkets and they'd be shouting over saying how buzzing they were that they had got like their their first salad crop or something so it was that real sense of like that everyone was doing it as a collective in the community together to, to try and take back control of of their food really Mm. and do you want to explain a little bit about what like what what's your setup what's the market market garden like that you've got so it's just uh we've got 1.5 acre field um and we just cultivated we've got a 16 by 12 meter patch uh which we're really fortunate that um a guy in in the next town just offered to come and rotivate it for us for free amazing he rotivated it for us and it was luckily when we had that that drought spell so that sort of stopped all the weeds coming back and we basically just started from there 
We started it quite small. We managed to get a polytunnel put up, managed to socially distance putting a polytunnel up, which is quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice. So what, what kind of things have you got going there at the moment? So we wanted to... Uh, originally, when coronavirus, um, when lockdown happened, we were sort of trying to coordinate with other local growers to try and decide more sort of like three main crops that we might grow. Um, and we were sort of going to focus on beetroot, peas and salads. And then we just got overexcited. And there was a few friends who got locked down with us who wanted to grow some things as well. So we just ended up growing a really diverse range of food. Um, and also it was really important that we kept like the ecology of the site strong. So um, I work somewhere two days a week in a wildflower nursery. So that was a big part of what we wanted to integrate into the patch as well. So we put all native wildflowers into into the, a designated area. Um, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah, well, I mean, going down to the land, there's so much there and it's completely flourishing. Well, there's, there's a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of weeds they're fighting back at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, a lot <laughs> of dogs. There's loads of dogs. <laughs> um, and you're, you're growing, like, a big diversity of different stuff. Like, where did you get your seeds from? I know that during lockdown there seemed to be a huge influx of people just trying to buy seed from everywhere they could but where did where did you get your seed and what type of seeds did you get? Before the lockdown happened we'd organised for a local seed swap event anyway and I've been in contact um, with Real Seeds because they're only an hour away from us and they had given us some seeds for the seed swap so we were lucky that we had those to get started and also I was just waking up at nine o'clock just to trying to get on the seed websites. So we just ended up buying from real seeds, from vital seeds and from Tamar Organics as well. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the most interesting heritage seed that you've got growing, do you reckon, on the land? We've got the tomatoes that are coming out now, which is quite exciting because out of most out of most of the vegetables that grow there, they're they're the most visibly diverse thing. That, that we've grown purely because they're all different colours and shapes and sizes. Um, I did really enjoy growing the salad crops though because out of everything on the patch, they're the, most, they're the thing that's most different from what you can get in the supermarket. Mm. So, and that was the first thing that we really had. Um, coming out of the hunger gap, it was really salads that sort of filled that. And it, it's really important, I think, that we were able to show that to people, to show them that it is something a little bit different because it really started to get people being excited about their food again. And they had more time at home, so they could really put more thought into what they were cooking and what they were going to eat as well. Mm. So so who are you selling to during lockdown? It was mainly to, to families in the local community, was it? Yeah, so at the start, obviously there's no cafe or restaurant trade. Um, we The aim was really just to try and supply food to the nearest village, which has got a population of about maybe 1,500 to 2,000 people. And we felt that we could get enough trade just from that one village to be able to um, just do all of our soul selling there. Um, we were really fortunate that another village on from, it's about three miles from us, there was a lady who wanted to do a community, community buying. So we would send her a list of what we had every week and she would send it out to members of the community and then we would just drop off one order there and then people would pick up from, from her house. 
So that really helped us during the very start when we didn't really have a customer base. Mm. And, and where are you at now with everything? Who are you selling to now then? So orders dropped off slightly when lockdown eased. I think during lockdown, people were more up for driving to pick up one bag of salad because they hadn't seen anyone and it was nice for them to get out and you were allowed to go out and buy food. So I think when people started to go back to work, we did lose some of that trade. Um, and also, we started to sell more to to restaurants and cafes and our sort of mentality shifted around it. It was less, we were less concerned with the local food security and more concerned with profit margins and time as well mm. because for for us we all started to get a social life back and it just meant that we were spending less time at the land um, it was also more convenient we could drop off larger amounts to cafes and restaurants so our main trade switched then to selling salads predominantly to to local cafes and restaurants, really. Mm. And um, and how does that shift kind of fit in with your, your vision for the land and, and what you want to do with it? Ideally, we really wanted to be able to feed local mouths and to really be able to give people like a diverse amount, mix of food to be able to cook at home. So that's why it's still really important for us that there's other local structures in place that can basically back us up when we're tired or we don't have time to focus on these things. So there's two places that we link up with. One of them is Patch and then the other one is Pembrokeshire Community Food Bank. Um, Pembrokeshire Community Food Bank focus more on uh, like cooking the food, so providing more meals for people. And then Patch work with distributing fresh produce um, to the local community, to, to households. I think during the pandemic, you know, Patch was so key, especially when people couldn't send their kids to school. People were having to, to cook for their children for three meals a day um, rather than relying on, on school meal vouchers. So it's our, it's our way of being able to provide food that is accessible and, and doesn't appear to cost more than what the supermarket charges. So it's turning into now that organic food is is becoming sort of like seen as this this luxury item, and in reality, you know, on our patch now we've got way too many courgettes that we can eat. So you, we could either sell them all at half price and try and sell twice as many, which might mean that we're able to reach out to a wider um, sort of like people who are on different different wages or people aren't even earning money but or we could just keep the veg at the same price and then give it to patch and then they can distribute it basically mm. so we were really fortunate that we were able to feed into that channel when we sort of started to go down the route again of, of selling to restaurants and cafes and mm. and and so do you think that that's been the biggest challenge that you've faced is, is kind of obviously at the beginning kind of having more time on your hands and that energy to really be feeding the kind of local community because everyone was in lockdown, everyone was in it together. But as things have kind of, kind of slowly shifted um, away from that and everyone's going back to work and that type of thing, has it, is that, do you see that as a bit of a challenge for yourself in terms of what you can put your time and energy into because you need to keep your small market garden afloat? 
and and also the fact that you know people are going out to eat more and and maybe don't have the time to come to the land to pick it up yeah i think that's um i think structurally it's figuring out how we can manage to get people involved so that we have more time to do things like promotions and 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 more door-to-door stuff that's probably the thing that has been sacrificed as we've as we've had less time and because when we do, when we do have the days where where we're working on the land that's where we want to be we want to be growing the veg we want to be weeding we want to be putting you know our hands in the soil and working and growing it and it's it is that that sort of like customer interaction and trying to market that that is the thing that 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 is sacrificed then so um yeah i think structurally it's figuring out how basically how like we can do it financially to to get someone else involved it's you know this year i've only really been able to pay the money back that i've invested in and there's been times when i've just really really felt that i really need someone else there and it's been able to financially be able to pay someone else to come and work with me a few days on the land um because otherwise you can end up just feeling completely alone with it. And what what do you think could change? Like, what do you think that could be to make you feel a bit more supported as a as a sort of new entrant market gardener? I think definitely creating markets to sell through would would be a huge benefit. Um, we have a local market in the town that's really poorly attended. And I think it's creating those networks to be able to bring different producers together to sell their produce through one place. Uh, I think it will make it more convenient for people as as growers or as as producers, and then they would have more time and wouldn't ha- there wouldn't be such a financial pressure on on selling the veg then, and the time could be more well utilised in keeping the costs down. Um, and it's already happening you see it with across the country like people are setting up like these food hubs uh, i think it, it would be i think the problem that we found was we really wanted to start a food hub and i think the problem that we found with it was that i wanted to get involved with starting one and to generate a, a bit of a sort of surge behind it but i just ran out of time because i was growing all the time so it's it's having someone or a body in place in each area who's able to take that on and to help set it up because if it's just left down to the growers, which at the moment it is, because they're the people who really feel the need for it, it needs to be something externally available to take the pressure off them having to run it themselves. Mm. And I guess that kind of leads me on to ask what... To you, what is what is food sovereignty? What does that mean to you? As a grower, I think looking looking especially in this area, looking at the way that farming has been for the last few sort of decades, looking at the way that my grandparents farmed the land and 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 their parents before them, is that we kind of have become almost like ecologically illiterate and the language that the farmers are speaking doesn't really match the language of the land anymore and I think by creating a relationship and working in synchronicity with the land so by growing the food that has been born out of it really bridges that gap 
and I think for our health and for the health of the land that's like that's just so necessary for that to happen and because ultimately like our food defines our culture so if we don't work alongside the land that we've grown on it it just means that we just lose that really Mm. and how how do how do seeds come into that how does it play a part it's it's i think it's paying respect to to where these seeds have been and like how they've got into our palms of our hands and the effort that people have put into saving them before us is is it's just completely disrespectful to just throw that away and just not not to savor it and to protect it um and just we owe it to it and it's like we need to promise ourselves that we'll really keep it alive and we we grow a few black oats on the land and for me that's it's so important and we grow einkorn which is one of the oldest varieties of wheat on on the um in the world and we just we just grow them to save the seeds we don't produce any food from them they're they're mixed in amongst the crops and it's it's so important it's one of my favorite parts of the field is to look at them because you just get a real sense of calm and ease when you see it because you understand how far it has come and if we lose those seeds then we genuinely lose our history and where we've come from really Mm. and can you can you explain a little bit more about the what the black oats are the story of the black oats so my my grandma actually used to say that they grew black oats on that field like many years ago really and well. until recently you, they've been impossible to get and uh, we've been part of a, a group called Lythanir which is um or Lythani, I'm not a native world speaker but um <laughs> which is trying to encourage small scale grain growing across Wales so they have um a variety called black oats and they are growing a wheat called Hindgumrow which is a, an old land race Welsh wheat which means old old man in Welsh and it, it's I think looking at the supermarkets when coronavirus hit like bread was like the main thing bread and flour was the main thing that everyone could really struggle to get and I think that shows where the weakest link in our food system is and I think bread has come further than any other food product in the supermarket in terms of the product that it originally was so we need to start encouraging farmers to do small-scale grain growing and giving them the facilities to be able to to process it and to basically turn it into bread for human consumption because at the moment it's really difficult. I would have loved to have done it this year, but when coronavirus hit, the quickest thing that we can do is to start growing vegetables. Why is it that it's so difficult to just go and start growing grain? And mm. um, what is the missing link? What is the, what is the barrier there? I think processing equipment is a is a big link. Having access to machinery to get it in the ground in the, in the first place can seem quite daunting as well if you think about contracting fees and I guess the size of the land that you need is 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 often a barrier you can't you know you have to grow it on rotation so but there's I think there needs to be more connections with other local farmers because 
they're already growing like on a bigger scale on these farms. They might be growing spuds or they might have cattle. So it's it's about getting another farmer who might want to grow grain to, to sort of get involved with them and they could do it on a rotation and they could just rent the fields for a certain amount of time and make it easier and also speaking to other local farmers nearby and just asking if they got somewhere to store it and then having these machinery rings where people can go and process them together because it was it was done once they they used to have community harvest days where people would would drive a thresher and a winnower up and everyone would bring their grain in and it would all get done together on a certain day and it's it's looking back at these old the old ways that we used to do it and thinking okay why have we gone to now and why have we morphed into this this sort of restrained method of farming that means that that everyone is is tied into their farm and we don't work with each other anymore mm. yeah i guess i guess it's kind of removed that community element of of the the growers and the farmers amongst themselves but also then with the local community and everybody that's, that's eating the food i guess we've kind of we've come pretty far away from having a community-based food system um you've mentioned quite a lot i guess around the the different i mean it's amazing on such a small site to be growing so much you've got the wildflowers and you've got a diversity of of vegetables that you're growing um you've got salads and and you've mentioned some some oats and and wheat that you're growing why is it important to you to to grow such a diversity i think diversity is key if we are to survive basically um I mean, firstly, it's just really interesting to see all of those things growing in together anyway, but they all have some kind of beneficial relationship with each other. So we have the wildflowers, which attract all the pollinators. Amongst, you know, we have the squash next to it, the squash flowers. We need to attract those those pollinators in. And it's even planting trees on site and growing the wheat. It's, you know, the wheat provides a wind barrier for the veg and it's it's fit is for one it's it's just us trying to figure out what we want to grow but secondly it is just that art of preservation and being able to continue those things and have them available and to to build on it because each year we'll hopefully save the seed from the small patch that we've got and next year we'll just make it a little bit bigger and just mean it'll just mean that we can just feed a, a, a few that that a few more people then from that. It's all exciting ideas to think about and I think COVID really sort of can drag you in one direction and I think it's important to really make sure that you keep your vision clear in a way and enable yourself to be creative with the ideas about what to do with the land because that's the really exciting thing about food production at the moment is that people are being creative with it and people are making really exciting products and there's like really good ways of being able to distribute the food better and to make it more affordable and to get it out to a wider wider um sort of like members of the community really Mm. and what what would you say to someone that is wanting to get involved um with kind of the the food sovereignty movement in the uk what would be your advice to them of how they could support growers like you or if they wanted to get into growing i think just start growing i think that was the that really kicked off in covid and it was just people were growing on their windowsills in their gardens like 
it just just by doing it yourself you just inspire others I was really preoccupied with trying to make sure that people knew how to grow at the start of COVID or that people had resources and tools when in reality all I really needed to do was to just go and grow and then you just have a positive effect on someone else who sees you doing it so I think just go and just start growing something. It's the connection's been severed in so many people's minds about where the food comes from so it's if you do eat if you do eat food, <laughs> which you probably do, then yeah. go and find out where it's come from and who's grown it and and what you can do with it, really, to get you excited about it again and to, to make you feel good when you eat it. Just remind yourself where your head was at when we got locked down because otherwise you'll just, you'll just like lose that flame that got ignited from coronavirus and... We really need to take the positives out of it and buy from your local producers. <laughs> yeah. Because they need you. They really do. They really need you. As both Kate and Katie have told us, now is the time for change. So stay tuned next week for the final episode of this series, where we head to England to hear the story of another new entrant market gardener championing the fight for local food, a CSA on a mission to make local food accessible to all, and the work that is being done by a few incredible people to change the future of food and farming in the UK and abroad. A huge thanks to Katie Hastings, Sinead O'Connor, Kate Roberts and the Guy Foundation for your contributions towards this episode. Thank you for listening to Frontline Food. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on Spotify or iTunes. Follow Frontline Foodcast on Instagram and Facebook or head to the website to find out more. Frontline Food is written and produced by me, Georgie Styles. Music contributions by Ollie Barton Wood, Shadow Flute and Owen Shires and logo designed by Holly Champion.